Welcome to Booked. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livius Nedden. This is our second installment of a very exciting reading series that we attended in Corydon, Indiana. It's a noir at the bar in Corydon. So uh, if you tuned into a previous show, uh, you would have heard Matthew McBride read his, uh, his great story from Noir at the Bar 2 called The Tar Hole. Carrie Gaffney with When I Knew I Sucked at Writing Noir, and uh, Jed Ayer's intro the whole thing and then read an excerpt from The Whole Buffalo. That's right. And I want to make sure that I emphasize the fact that this reading that you're about to hear is a very special treat. <laughs> if, that, if that doesn't make sense to you, you need to go back and listen to episode one. Hey, you know what else we talked about in episode one? What? The heebie-jeebies that we had staying in that hotel. Yeah, that... You mean the haunted? Is the haunted yes. hotel the one you're talking yes. about? Yes, okay. yes, yes. Uh huh. All right. Um, the only hotel we stayed. In. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> People can be like, "Why did they need to stay?" It was like yeah. one night, right? Yeah, but all I know is I keep turning on those ghost hunter shows to see when they're going to be at the Baymont Suites and Inns or whatever in Corydon, Indiana, because it's going to happen. Can I confess? I don't think I told you this, but I actually, while we were in the hotel, I googled haunted hotels, Corydon, Indiana, and what came up? Um. Nothing specifically, but there was, uh, it somehow led me to um, an, in, a, an article that, or not an article, but like a post on a forum somewhere about Erin Moran and how she's, you know, kind of all, you know, not doing so well down there. And apparently, after getting hit, kicked out of certain hotels, she did spend a little time at our Baymont Inn in uh, Corden, Indiana. Oh, I wonder if she stayed in the haunted room. Haunted room number 306, Baymont Inn, Corden. And, uh, yeah. And the haunted clock, which might just be our haunted not inability to understand time zones. <laughs> All right. Before we go into that, we have, we have another um, three fantastic uh, readers for you. Um, Frank Bill, host of uh, this event that was at uh, Beef O'Brady's in Corden. Um, he read a story called What Once Was from the follow-up to his newest upcoming novel, Donnybrook. That's right. And Jed actually gives us a shout right before uh, Frank goes up, right? He, he actually says, if you haven't heard of, or if you heard Booked or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's, whatever. that's what he said. He's like, if you heard Booked or whatever, then you're... <laughs> you heard those so, little wimpy bitches so. who can't handle a little ghost. <laughs> So um, Frank Bell, as I'm sure you're already aware, author of Crimes in Southern Indiana, which we reviewed on episode number 43, and uh, the upcoming Donnybrook, um, which is uh, is coming soon. I think it's early next year, right? Yeah, it's like March, I think, of next yeah. year. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we might be reading that. Um, after Frank Bill, we had the pleasure of, of seeing a new face, someone we hadn't seen before again, uh, a gentleman named Lou Perry, who is the other person from Second Story. Uh, the group in Indianapolis that Livius mentioned on the previous episode that helps kids with creative writing and stuff like that. I checked out the website. It looks pretty cool. Um, so anyway, Lou came up and he read his story. I like stuff that's awesome. And um, if any of this is out of sequence, so we had to do some trickery here because two of the stories really needed to go together. Um, we do skip forward a little bit to Kirby Gann, um, who read an excerpt from Ghosting. Um, he is the author of uh, Ghosting, obviously, the book he's reading an excerpt from, Our Napoleon in Rags and The Barbarian Parade. Can I, uh, can I tell you I have a suspicion that I have? Sure. I always ask permission. I noticed this when I'm editing the podcast, first of all. <laughs> I always ask permission. I'm like, hey, can I say this? And that's just my way of, like, it's my, like, ham-handed segue, kind of, to introduce that I have a thought. 
Um, but you don't do that, and I do. And I'm like, why do I always ask permission? But you know, now it's like three minutes of me talking about it. But uh, anyway, my suspicion, I was looking up uh, Kirby Gann's books earlier, and uh, the book Our Napoleon in Rags, I think that title may be a reference to a lyric from a Bob Dylan song. Bob Dylan's the really whiny one, right? What do you mean whiny? Like he just sings and it just sounds like he's whining. Oh, I thought you meant like he uh, he complains about haunted hotels. Oh, oh no, that's us. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get us confused yeah, with Bob we're Dylan. Not Bob Dylan. Um, he, uh, sure. I, I if uh, it might be what you're thinking of. Sure. Okay. But anyway, Sorry, I, I think poke fun that's, Bob Dylan. Yeah, that's. A, I think it's a it's a reference to, and I might have to find some. While we're listening to these guys talk, I might have to find some proof about that. Well, very cool. Then um, maybe we should just let uh, we should kick back, give you some time to uh, to to do that. Actually, we should mention we should mention because I don't know if it came up in a previous episode or not. You'll hear a little bit of Jed Ayers um, as our MC talk a little bit about uh, David James Keaton and Amy Luke's recent marriage. So congratulations, David and Amy. That's right, booked officially um, because we didn't get a invitation to the wedding for some reason. It must have got lost in the mail. You know, you didn't um, you didn't get an invitation. Oh shit! Anyway, um, I just yeah. couldn't go. So, <laughs> big big uh, congratulations to David James Keaton and Amy Luke in their recent it, nuptials. Yeah, it was nice that we were part of their honeymoon. Yeah, you know what? I guess we kind of were, weren't we? So yes, and so. you know, any of the listeners out there who are trying to plan a honeymoon, <laughs> 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 we do make ourselves available for a modest fee just to hang out yeah. with. That is correct. All right, maybe we should just get right into the reading. So here are Frank Bill, Lou Perry, and Kirby Gann. Um, you may or may not have heard the booked podcast that uh, comes your way over the internet out of Chicago. Yeah! <laughs> he has. Rob Olson and Livius Nedden from Booked are here tonight. They are recording everything, so watch what you say. Sorry, Matt. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, thanks very much to Booked for showing up. Thanks very much to Abigail for having a birthday. Thanks so much to Beefs for having the awesomest name since Frank Sinatra and the Blender. And uh, I, Frank, you want to go next? This guy's name is Frank Bill. You may or may not have heard of him. Do you have a book? You. He's, he had a book come out. Oh, yeah. And he's got a brand new one coming out, and it's an ass kicker called Donnybrook, which I think is Irish for ass kicking. Um, anyway, I don't think there's anything I need to say. Um, you can ask Frank later. He lives in town. You can find him real easy. Frank Bill. shitty lighting here. Um, thanks everybody for coming out. Really appreciate it. Um, really didn't know what to read, so I figured since people will be buying the book next year, why read from that when I can read from the follow-up that I'm working on to Donnybrook. Um, it's a short, tense piece. It's about two, uh, it's about a father and a son who are uh, going around scrapping metal. Um, 
and the uh, base was because the economy went to shit. Might kind of sound familiar. But anyway, it's called What Once Was. Um, and I'll begin. <clears throat> the boy questioned how much longer he could live this, live this existence of hand-to-mouth with his father, scavenging through the rural areas of Tennessee and Kentucky. When wee hours of night, they ripped and cut bronze wiring and piping from the walls and floors of foreclosed homes and traded the weight for tender at salvage yards. After more than a year of travel, their frames sketched into the truck seat, truck seat like two skeletons from a discerning past with no future. Maps lined the busted dash with the father and boys, roots highlighted, addresses of houses seized by banks they'd written down from the county sheriff's bulletin boards in the towns they visited. The boy longed for a life with kids his own age to fish with, talk about books and girls, something more than the wiring of a home or the best price of copper per pound. He ran a hand through his reams of hair that were the width of a brick from forehead to neck, unable to restrain his thoughts from the father, and said, tired of shit, I'm gonna go back home. When the economy went to snuff, the boy was 14. He remembered stepping from the riddling shouts of children who lined the green vinyl seating of the school bus. Walked, walked the long stretch of gravel to a heat-bleached trailer and a pole barn the father worked from, a stretch of land they resided, resided upon since the boy's birth. The mother had ran off with another man when the boy was nine on what the father called the chemical path. Rumor was she got clasped into a world of trading skin and truck stop diners to afford her and her new fellow's next fix. Entering the living room, the boy found the father sunk into the couch, lipping a bottle of black label Evan Williams. Two backpacks expanded and laid out on the wooden coffee table. And the boy questioned, where are we going? The father swallowed hard and capped the bottle, knowing, the other, knowing that other than the $100 in his wallet, he was flat broke. Employment had dried up. No one was spending. The furniture restoration and handyman business, where he'd strip and restore antique dressers and hutches, remodel a room, build a new deck, or rewire a home, had sunk. He was left with nothing but splinters, tools collecting dust, and a mouth to feed. He procured an idea from a regular down at the tavern who'd yammered about homes being built quicker than they could be inhabited. Their worth imploded, and now they were unable to be afforded. The materials that constructed them lay in rot. A person would be better off looting the metallic conductors from the structures and burning the rest. From there, the wheels of continuation turned in the father's mind, knowing what he could do and how he could do it. Planting his palms on his knees, the father stood up, leveled his singed red eyes in the boy, and said, into the wilds of life, what about school, our home? The boy sensed the father's tension as he grabbed one of the packs, handed it to the boy like an uppercut to the gut. The road will provide each of us. For, the road will provide for each, I'm messed up here. The road will provide each of those. And without contemplating consequence for his words, the boy asked, what if I don't want to go? It was the first time the father had laid skin to the boy, bringing the calluses of his right palm to the boy's face, telling him, you have no say in the tutelage I'm, I'm giving. And they left that day with the clothes on their backs, a tent, a gun, some tools, fishing equipment, and a few books the father and boy favored, for whom the bell tolls, 
the old man, the sea, tobacco road, wise blood, and the sound and the fury. Now, the boy's words brought the lurch of guilt for this way of life to the father. He questioned the boy's quietness as of late, his rolling of the eyes when talking scrap prices, distant stares at other kids hanging out in the mom and pop groceries when gathering provisions. But the father would not show this weakness. To him it meant failure as a provider and a sire. He replaced it with anger, cold the remaining tobacco from his cigarette, flipped the butt out the window where dark passed warm and rashy as a wool blanket, took the steering with his left, teared his right fist into the peak of the boy's left jaw. The boy's right side sculled the window. Damn it, the boy yelled. The truck swerved off, then back onto the road. Pointing out the insect-spatted windshield, the father said, all this here is your home. Pushing the hair from his eyes, the boy rubbed his cheek, felt the balm of heat, held back the water that weighted his sight. I've seen enough of this home. I want friends, to go back to school. I want to be like it once was. Over the past year, they took shelter amongst the dilapidated houses within the hollers of shunned vehicles on cinder blocks, where dry rotted tires hung from limbs and unraked leaves piled to the shade of bourbon and replaced the grass. They'd back down rutted driveways that held no hint of movement, hoping for a few hours of shut-eye. Sometimes they were met by half-mongrel hounds barking. Then the father would shift from reverse to drive and speed away as the next breeds gave chase. Other times they'd find a stream, set up a camp where they'd bathe and fish. Cat hit at night while bluegill or bass struck at the break of morning. They'd scale, gut, and then sear the open meat in a cast iron pan over an open flame, fingering and spitting out the needle-like bones. In the father's eyes, he'd educated and ministered, for he and the boy the only way he knew, passing on his skills of how, to ha how a house was blueprinted, where the wiring and piping ran, and on where to begin cutting the bronze-colored metal, then loading and hauling their wares to a place where they could burn the insulation from the Romex to trade weight for coin. To the father, these learnings were an apprenticeship for survival. The father slowed the truck as they rounded a lake. A few houses were plotted across what looked to have once been untrespassed acreage, more than likely willed to a family member after Ken had died, then sold and sectioned off for new construction. At least that's what the father believed. Friends, the father questioned, you got me. What used to be has been banked into lies, squandered at the price of persons like us, the working. Tell me this, how else are we supposed to earn our keep? When money was flowing well, the father'd splurge on a hotel, buy the boy a book from a grocery, offer a good night of comfort, cable TV and a lamplight to read by, while the father swam in a 20 or $30 bottle of whiskey and their battery-powered tools charged. Couldn't we just get us jobs somewhere, move back into our trailer? The father chuckled. Your mouth please my ears with ignorance, boy. You know there's no such foolishness being offered, and we rent our skin for no man. They'd heard the stories when peeling up the Ford and grabbing a local paper. Jobs had become scarce. Even, parting, even getting part-time work washing down the lot at a McDonald's was competitive. They'd spoken with families like them who'd become homeless and camped beneath overpasses in cities or within parks. How do we know if we don't look? 
They were closer to home than they'd ever been. Had crossed over the Ohio River from Kentucky to Indiana two days ago. Paid a visit to the Justice Center, scribbled down some residences and pitched their tent at the stage stop campgrounds. Mapped out their digression. They'd been driving somewhere between Laconia and Elizabeth, had entered a private area of housing, one road in and the same road out. Maybe this return to familiarity had brought on the boy's discourse. The father thought as he lashed back with his trail-worn wisdom. Taught you better than that, boy. Never let you starve nor freeze. No, we just lurk among the streams of decay, take company with human crustaceans. The father hung the right, pictured himself stomping the brake, brake, laying a tread of knuckles upside the boy's hard head. But he knew the boy had a venomous tongue, would grow sharper than he'd ever be. And for this, the father was proud. Killing the truck lights, the father let the moon navigate him into a half-circle drive, rolling the boy's words around in his mind, believing that was no reason for the boy to wield him with disrespect. The miles they traveled wasn't easy for either of them. The father missed planing and staining wood, hammering nails or driving screws into threaded boards to frame a deck or an addition to create something of substance. And he'd not laid with a female in over 12 months or better. But the whiskey helped to numb those emotions of want. The brick home sat lone, devoid of vehicle or light, with others over a football field away. Shifting into reverse, the father backed down the rutted soil, tucked the truck up next to the house, and turned the ignition to off. The boy grabbed his flashlight, unlatched the passenger's side door. The father reached for the boy's arm, straining for words to better all that had been said, but he found none, and the boy jerked free. The father stood opposite the boy, fastening his tool belt. The boy pouted and stared out into the night for which they traveled, and the father told him, quit wasting the dark. Get your cutter and bar. Go around back. They supporting walls. Looks to be a walkout. Try the doors, start in the pipes. From the Ford's bed, the boy pulled a battery-powered saw and a hexagonal crowbar and said, yes, master, then disappeared around the corner of the house before the father could acknowledge the reply. Tasting the bitterness of truth, the father knew there was no reward for the struggling. Seemed the harder one tried, the harder life came, and all one could do was keep trudging forward. Trying the side door before committing to prying, the knob turned and the door opened. Sense of mildewed lumber and chalky walls engulfed the father's inhale. Shining a light on the kitchen floor, tile and grout lay in pieces, had been piled or broken. Tea stains dotted the ceiling with jellyfish outlines. The countertops were scuffed to the particle board beneath them. Cabinet doors had been rended from hinges. Kneeling down, the father looked beneath the sink. A foul odor decorated the square space. He checked the piping, how it was connected. Whether it was hard or flex, it was neither. It had been gutted. In its place lay the chalky bones of a small animal, pieces of hide, specks of piss ants, and shells of dead flies. The hell, the father muttered. Standing up, he walked to a set of doors, opened them expecting to find the water heater. It was gone. Following the warped walls from the kitchen to the dining area, the father glanced around the open areas of shadow. Decay lingered in the air, and the father listened for the boy. Could hear no jarring of metal teeth against, against mineral. Took in the sheetrock that held smears of handprints. Had been pebbled to the floor from wiring being ripped out but not finished, just frayed ends of wire. 
hanging as if some scrappers had been halted of their actions. From the far left corner next to a curtain, curtainless window, a yoke hung balanced in its center from, the, from above. It held medium-sized hooks on each end where two hinds had been attached, now shriveled. The carcass they'd been connected to was no more. Only sticky splotches of matted pelt and blood lay on the floor. Looked to have been from a deer, the father thought. Steps printed from the mess tracked toward a hallway where shapes flickered and strobe. Worry stirred within the father. He wanted to find the boy to be rid of this place. Stepped down the wall and into a windowless room on the right that reeked of urine. A candle set on the carpet, creating a static haze. He shined over the blots of shag. Blankets lay twisted and piled. A doorless opening to the left descended down with a set of stairs. Basement, the father thought. In the corner, worn boots were attached to faded denim. The father guided the light-up legs, made out two silhouettes. A voice came in a sparking screech. Dim at their light. The shape of a man held a length of steel pressed to the boy's throat. He had a face that looked cooked and split. One eye stared, the other was bare skin in the shade of a cherry-flavored slushy. In the boy's right, he gripped the reciprocating saw. The other was empty. Don't be quaking that edge in my boy's throat. We've no yearn for trouble. Thoughts of dying entered the boy's mind, of all that he'd seen and all that he'd done. They crossed some unruly types on their journey, but nothing that made him question his expectancy. This here is our squat. Release your clutch from the boy and we'll be a memory. The words, our squat, had not registered in the father's understanding till the aroma of dated cottage cheese suffused with humidity came all at once and the boy's whites metered wide. Two feet of lumber angled into the father's nape. The flashlight dropped, the father palmed at the throb in his neck, collared shit, took another hit from the wood. A voice clanked over top of the father with warning. All your kind do is cripple the foundation of its worth teach you not to carve and steal for density. Tense, the boy's gut nodded with the blows that descended upon, descended upon the father, knowing he should have turned back the same way he'd entered. Seeing where the plumbing had been stripped, animal carcasses and human feces littered to basement walls and floor. The blade came from nowhere, threatened him with, yell and it'll be your last walk. A hand pressed and led him up the steps. The heathen and the boy waited as they listened to the father walk from room to room. Now, the boy spasmed forward, but was stopped by the sharpness against his throat. The laugh of words spread over the boy's shoulder. Hold steady, young man. Elsner's getting his groove on your pops. The father's outline wilted to the carpet. The boy felt the man's chest and his back, and a hand rubbed at the arch of muscle that connected to his hamstring. The other man laid a boot into the father's ribs. Some space between, came between the boy's Adam's apple and the knife as the man began sniffing the boy's lobe. The father grunted. The boy wanted to vomit. His hand steeped around the rubber handle of the instrument. Thoughts of what to do and how to do it came all at once, like severing the heft of alloy from walls and floors of uninhibited homes. Gouging the man's right knee, I'm sorry, gouging, gauging the man's right knee pressed into the bend of his own, the boy did the one thing the father had honed in him. The boy raised his left hand up his body, fingered a sharp line below his chin, squeezed the trigger in his right, turned and slanted a cross cut into the meat of the man's leg. 
the man bailed. Oh, oh, oh! Hot specks peppered the boy's hand as he watched the man reach and patted the dark that spread from his thigh like a busted transmission. The one called Elsner looked to the screams, then came the crack, the separation of foot, then another crack, and the discomfort that blistered up Elsner's shin and knee caused the release of the rectangular length of wood. Elsner squealed and bent forward at the split and give of his calcified metatarsals tissue as the father worked his way from the floor with the hammer, stood heaving and leveled the straight claw into Elsner's scalp, silenced his agony. Agony. Fingers raked at the boy's shoulder with adrenaline. Help your old man. The boy leaned, supported the father's mass, and the father panted, lead us from this lair of filth. The boy guided him down the hall, into the dining room where several outlines emerged. The boy raised the tool, smashed the trigger, and swung at the air. A man groaned, bastard. The boy clipped human rind. Bodies backed away, barking, no, stop, stop. The boy rushed, dragging the father into the kitchen and out the door. At the truck, the father swung his arm from the boy, reached for the driver's side door, and said, I can navigate. Firing the engine, the father shifted into drive and stopped the gas. Tires flung dirt till they bit hard surface. The father drove out the same way he'd entered, questioned what had just taken place, trying to make sense of what they'd walked into, some unknown juncture of hell. The father pondered what he'd spoken to the boy, the clenched digits he'd belted him with, the life of salvage. Maybe he traveled so long that he lost sight of change. He felt the rhythm pounding behind his breast, knowing what caused his beat, because this beat was blood. It was the same that pulsed within the boy, and as they disappeared into the raven of mourning, the father spoke. Maybe it's time we look to settle, rebuild what once was. Everybody got their beers? Everybody got their booze? Everybody got their smokes? All right. I don't think Abigail's here any longer. So this is now no longer Abigail's birthday party. This is officially the final night of the orgy that has been the uh, wedding party for Amy and David. Is it married in here or is it just them? Eh? Oh, that is terrible. I apologize. Half a corona and then you get that. Okay, uh, the Notre Dame game is over. How'd it go? We won means Notre Dame won in triple overtime. All right. I've been speaking with the vice president uh, today. Uh, with election season coming up, it's tense. Lou Perry is the vice president of Second Story, uh, reading series, literary series in Indianapolis. I think this vice president thing is bullshit, frankly. I, I think we need a coup. You know, if somebody assassinates the president, the vice president just automatically in. That's probably less messy than an election. So I, I don't know. You guys, you can, you can give Lou your own advice. But uh, Lupe from Indianapolis. 
Uh, first, thanks to Frank for inviting me. Basically, uh, having never read anything I've written other than a few online things, uh, so he has no idea what's about to come. Um, this is a story I wrote called, I Like Stuff That's Awesome. I like stuff that's awesome, and I dislike stuff that sucks. That's really all she needed to know about me, but she kept, kept asking questions, questions, questions. She wouldn't shut the fuck up. So I lied to her, and I said I had to take a piss. What I actually did was sneak out of the wave and into my F-150. It was red and in a constant state of rage. I'd replaced the standard tires with 36-inch mudders the summer before, and just a few weeks ago I installed a chrome roll bar with floodlights mounted on it. My truck's fucking awesome. Other stuff that's awesome, hamburgers, electric guitars, America, and lightsabers. I knew Alyssa through my friend Dusty. I say it like that because I mean that I saw a picture of her on Dusty's phone, and he said I should text message her. She had nice hair and a good jawline, so I did. We traded a few texts and agreed to meet up at the Wave. The Wave's got good burgers. It wasn't a real blind date because we weren't going into the thing with our eyes closed. It was a semi-blind date, I guess. Like someone had sprayed us both in the face with Lysol before we got to the Wave, and we'd only seen each other through these watery, half-stinging pictures. Uh, the point of all this is that I'd only eaten half my burger before I had to bolt. Which is a shame because, like I said, the Wave's got great burgers. Anyway, I was rolling out of the parking lot down Canal Street, thinking about that half-eaten burger that Alyssa was probably going to pay for and how she'd probably feed it to her dog or something, when I got pulled over by this cop named Jonesy. His real name was Officer Scott Jones, but everyone called him Jonesy because it seemed like he should have a nickname. I turned off the truck and waited for him to come knocking on my window. I knew that I hadn't done anything wrong. Jonesy just, Jonesy just liked to pull me over. Something about me rubs him the wrong way, I guess. He knocked on the window, and I rolled it down. Come on, man, I said. You know it's street legal. Bumper seems a little high to me, he said, from behind his cop mustache. Then measure it. You need a tape measure? There's one in the back. I brought my own this time, he said. In Pennsylvania, there's this law about how the bumper of your truck can't be off the ground more than 30 inches. Mine measures 29 and 3 quarters. Josie disappeared behind my truck, and while he measured the bumper, I decided I was glad I had left the burger at the wave and that maybe Alyssa wouldn't give it to her dog. Maybe she'd still be hungry after her salad and eat it. Josie came back looking pissed off. 29 and 3 quarters, I asked. I'm going to nail you someday, Ox. I don't like your face, he said. I flipped him the bird, bird rolled up my window, and pulled away. Josie sucks. Other stuff that sucks. Half-eaten burgers, debt collectors, chicks who won't shut the hell up, and Nickelback. <laughs> Canal Street connects one side of Sharon, Pennsylvania to the other, and I decided to drive to our gang's lounge at the other side, along the north shore of the Shenango River. Sharon isn't big. I could have walked. But it was Wednesday, and it was July, so that meant it was truck night. It was a one night of the week that you could buy beer and a half-gallon milk jug instead of buy the glass. It was also the one night of the week where they let people drive their trucks through a huge mud pit next to the parking lot. The thing was about an eighth of a mile long, and to get through it, you had to go down a steep hill and tear through a swimming pool of mud. Then you had to make it out of the pit by driving up another hill. Our gangs even sprung for hillside towing service to be on hand so they could pull out all the dumbasses who got their trucks stuck. My truck never got stuck. 
but that was because I never drove it through the pit. I had too much money in it to break an axle or burn out the engine trying to show off for a bunch of drunks. I thought about it, of course, and I was pretty sure I'd, made, I'd make it through. But if I didn't, I'd be a joke, a joke with a busted up truck and no money to fix it. So I pulled into our gangs, bought a milk, full of beer, milk jug full of beer, and watched the show for a while. It was still early, so I didn't think anything too awesome would happen yet. But I was wrong. Somebody with a Land Rover, a fucking Land Rover, decided to take it for a spin through the mud. He revved his engine at the top of the mud pit, and the crowd cheered, me included. But we all knew what was going to happen. I saw Dip from Hillside Towing fire up the winch on his truck before the dumbass in the Land Rover was finished playing to the crowd. Dip was a good guy. He was bald, with a long goatee that jutted down from his chin like a piece of stone. He sort of looked like Jim the Anvil Neidhart, except he wasn't wearing sunglasses. When the Land Rover finally sped into the mud and got itself stuck, Dip pulled the cable from his truck and down into the mud. He was wearing blue jean overalls, and he dove into the mud. The crowd cheered. He hooked the cable onto the Land Rover's bumper, and someone tossed him a can of beer. He took out his keys, punched a hole in the bottom of the can, and shotgunned the beer. Like I said, Dip is awesome. Other stuff that's awesome, old school WWF, deer jerky, and snowmobiles. After I finished my first milk jug full of beer, I went and got another. Ox came a familiar voice. Fresh milk jug in hand, I turned and saw Kim Delaney. She looked pretty much the same. Long dark hair, full lips, short, and pretty in a mousy sort of way that most people missed. Me and Kim went, went to high school together and even dated during the summer between our sophomore and junior years. But when two a days for football started, I dumped her. She went off to college and I didn't see her too much anymore. The way I figured it, there were two kinds of people in Sharon, people who leave and people who stay. Kim was a person who left, even though she was standing right in front of me. I knew it, she knew it, everyone knew it. She'd be gone soon enough. It was best not to think too much about the people who left. Kimmy, I said, good to see you. And that wasn't a lie, it was good to see her, just like it's always good to see people you haven't seen for a long time. You too, she said, smiling, you look good. That wasn't a lie either. I've been working out quite a bit at the Buell Club and my arms were thick with muscle. I also had an awesome tattoo of a Grim Reaper on my shoulder. I made sure the tattoo was visible to her, which was pretty easy because I was wearing a wife beater. There was an uncomfortable silence that followed. It reminded me why it's best not to spend too much time thinking about people who leave. That ends up leading you to thinking about other stuff that no one who stays wants to think about. Back for a visit, I finally asked. Short one, she said then back to school. You're still in school? We'd finished high school seven years ago, and I couldn't imagine being as old as I am and still writing book reports and memorizing shit. I'm in grad school now, she said, and after a brief pause, she said molecular biology. She fidgeted a little bit and looked uncomfortable like she had something she knew she, like she had said something she knew she shouldn't have. I was quiet for a second and let her feel that way. Then I asked her if she wanted a beer. My treat, I told her. She looked at me, and down at the milk jug in my hand. She said no, smiled, told me it was good to see me again, then walked away. Kim sucks. <laughs> Other things that suck, Patch Adams, people taking forever at the Buell Club's only fucking squat rack, and looking stupid to girls like Kim, and soccer. Soccer sucks. <clears throat> the thing about truck night at our gangs is that you can't spend more than an hour there without seeing people you know, even if you're not in the mood to. I shoved my way through the crowd that lined the mud pit. My milk jug was getting emptier all the time and I was focusing less on people's faces than I normally did. I probably brushed by about a dozen people I knew without even saying hi. 
I would have brushed right by Bobby Paletta, too, but she stepped right in front of me, and I nearly knocked her ass over tea kettle. I wasn't surprised to see Bobby, not like I was with Kim. Bobby was a person who stayed. She was a cashier at Giant Eagle, and her shift must have just ended because she was still wearing her teal Giant Eagle shirt with its black collar, along with anonymous black pants and sneakers. Hey, Ox, she said. Buy me a beer. I bought her one, and we went back to my truck to sit on the tailgate and watch everyone get stuck in the mud pit. She was taller than Kim and leaner. Her hair was dirty blonde and long, and she had green eyes that reminded me of a cat. She was a few years younger than me, so I didn't know her in high school like I did Kim. It seemed like those lines of separation vanished pretty quickly a few years out of school, even though you still think about them. We watched Bucky Cardamone and his shitty F-150 jacked up on secondhand shackles get stuck. Bucky yelled at Dip while he pulled the truck from the mud and had to be restrained by a couple of other guys. Me and Bobby laughed at Bucky the whole time. While we waited for the next truck, we talked about work, about the weather, and about our tattoos. She had a wicked tribal tattoo that started her neck and wound itself around her shoulder and down the left side of her torso. She pulled up her shirt for me to get a good look at it. I talked about my bench press, and she ran her hands along my arms and pecs and pressed. The conversation came easy. It wasn't forced or awkward, not like it was with Kim. This was how it went until after midnight. By that time, I was on my third jug of beer, and Bobby was on her second. It was still hot out, so she took off her giant eagle shirt and was wearing a wife beater like me. We crawled into the truck's cab from the bed. I swung through the back window first, then Bobby came after. My hand slipped under her shirt as I helped her in, but she didn't seem to mind. Dip was towing out Mark Butler's Dodge Ram. I told Bobby that I would never buy a Dodge Ram, not even if someone put a fucking gun to my head. Why do you buy a truck when its name doesn't make any sense? Dodge Ram. I chuckled every time I heard it. Bobby sat next to me, a glazed look in her cat eyes. But she was happy, and so was I. It was motherfucking truck night. How couldn't we be? We were alone in the cab. Metal and glass separated us from the drunks and the worn-out whores and the young punks with flashy lowriders that didn't have a prayer of making it through the pit. My 36-inch mutters and the lift kit I had spent an entire month's pay on raised us above them so all we could see were the tops of their heads. I looked down into the crowd to see if Kim was still there, if she could see me riding above the crowd in my truck like some sort of motherfucking pharaoh riding in his litter. I didn't know if I saw her or not. I told Bobby to buckle the fuck up. I flipped on the floodlights to let everyone know that I was going into the pit, and the crowd parted like the motherfucking Red Sea. I brought the truck to the pit's edge, revving the engine impatiently while Dip finished towing Mark Butler's piece-of-shit Dodge Ram from the mud. Bobby laughed as the engine growled and told me not to shoot my wad too early. Bobby's awesome. Other stuff that's awesome, tits, V8 engines, drunk sluts, and Brett Kiesel. I told her that if I did, I'd expect a discount. She laughed again. Kim wouldn't have laughed at that. Dip had cleared the pit, and I turned up the stereo so fucking loud that they could probably hear us over in Sharpsville. Mastodon belted from my speakers. All machine gun per percussion, throaty screaming, and electric guitars. Bobby absently nodded along with the drumbeat like a person who's familiar with the song does, and her, and her hair fell down over her face so she looked like that crazy fucking ghost from the ring. Kim probably never even heard of Mastodon. My truck is at the precipice of the pit, my engine snorting and bellowing like some sort of fucking demon about to be born into an unsuspecting world. The audience is past drunk, and people bleat and stumble around like they're animals on their way to a goddamn slaughterhouse. I stomp on the gas like I'm trying to break someone's skull, and the tires spin and smoke before launching us down the hill into a lake of muck. My hands choke the steering wheel as Bobby laughs crazily. 
takes everything I have not to reach over and snap her fucking neck like a glow stick. The muck splatters in thick chunks against the windows like a piece of wet whale blubber. My engine is a team of fucking Clydesdales, and we tear through the mud pit. Bobby's gone from nodding her head along to the music to full-on headbanging, and her dirty blonde hair twists and flips like it's synced to the drum beat. When we hit the other end of the pit, I shift gears and begin our climb out of the filth and into the light of the parking lot. The crowd cheers at our triumph, and Bobby rolls down her window, Mastodon still screaming out of my speakers. She pulls herself halfway out and pumps her fist and pulls off her wife beater and throws it into the crowd. Her tattoo looks like an angry black boa constrictor winding itself around her naked torso. The cheers get louder, and those nearest to us spray her with stale beer. Later tonight, while Kim sleeps in her childhood bed and Dip collapses on his couch, and Alyssa wonders where I went and what she did wrong, Bobby and me will fuck in the mud-filled bed of my truck. Our ears still ringing from Mastodon. We'll pull over, we'll, we'll pull over on the side of Sharon Sharpsville Road, and she'll wave to the oncoming traffic, giggling like a fucking imbecile the whole time. The squeak of the suspension in the hot night air, the belches of mud as our movement creates and breaks pockets of suction, the whoosh of traffic as it rushes by. My gaze will settle on the harvest moon behind her, and I'll think about the way moons like that sometimes seem to thrum in the dead of the night, almost like a tuning fork. After that, she'll collapse into the drying mud, stinking of stale beer and sweat, and say, that was awesome. Yeah, I'll say, awesome. Thank you. That was awesome. Kirby Gans, the author of Ghosting, as well as three, three other novels? Two other novels, two previous novels. Ghosting, I'm embarrassed to say, other than the check it out now section on Amazon or wherever I checked it out several months ago, I haven't read the whole thing. But damn, I read the first two chapters and it's been the top of my to-be-read pile for uh, too long, and I'm gonna get to it real soon. I'm excited as hell to introduce Louisville, Kentucky's Kirby Gann. Dang, you're tall. That's good. Hi, everybody. Um, I don't have a short story to, to read from, so I'm going to read from the novel. And I've been reading from, from a, for a while, and I'm tired of reading from the beginning. Um, so I'm going to read fairly deep into the book. And there's not, usually I don't like to do that because you have to set up stuff. But uh, this scene, it's kind of obvious what's going on. Um, you just need to know a few things. Lida Skaggs is a woman. She's uh, very high on, on some pills right now, and she's going to be waking up from uh, passing out. And then there are two other characters, Arlie No and uh, Lawrence Gruel. Lawrence Gruel is uh, basically a, a hillbilly gangster, and um, he's been sick and dying for a long time. Lida's been looking after him. Uh, diabetes is one of his illnesses, and so you'll, see a re you'll hear a reference to his chopped off toes, and that's because of loss of circulation. Arlie No is a guy with blue skin because of a blood disorder, and uh, is a longtime partner. Uh, with Lawrence Gruel and their nefarious deeds. So, she lists deep and restless dream, a dream teeming with morning light. 
blinding columns of honey, gold, embracing her body where she lies in a verdant meadow on lush grass, grass as dense as the hair of her firstborn son, grass she fingers for the scratch of their parchment blades. She grips a tuft in her fist and tests the roots. Trees shush nearby. She feels their proximity but cannot seem to open her eyes enough to see them. I got a phone call today. Sitting there eating good eggs and the phone rings. You know about that. How would I know who calls you? Look at me. Because of the light, that peculiar light specific to dreams, so bright it bleaches out all shadow, she can't unfold her eyes. Spring is a smell, a lime green pixie dust in her nose. It feels like an army of tiny miners chipping away in there. You used to be able to take a joke. I never, not when I'm about making money. She cannot get her eyes open to see what's happening around her. All she can make out is light filling her half-open eyes, the grass faded beneath her hands in the bright morning of it. That and voices. Her head swims, struggling against a current. Look at that. That woman sleeps more than I do. She's sleeping now? She with us? I'm here, Lida says. One corner of her mouth drags warm and Novocaine numb. A stiffness plagues her neck, and she wonders how long she drives with her head thrown back. I was just in the nicest place. Why did you take me from there? Arlino stands over Gruel, buried on the couch beneath two blankets and his heirloom quilt. Nose hands hide in his pockets, his wide cheekbones as prominent as welts, lips a wadded purple bloom. His gray eyes scan her face with disinterest. Lottie yawns, scratches at the itch in her nose, the single effect of painkillers she doesn't like. What time is it? Late enough for me to wonder the point in talking to a dead man about his troubles, Arlie says. Why don't you make us some coffee? Her body responds automatically to the command, Lida rising to her feet. As soon as she's up, she understands something's wrong. There's a tweak in her equilibrium, and the house lurches as a boat battling storm-thrown seas. No sooner is she upright than a wave knocks her down again. Noah steps out of her fall with a grace and dexterity she would not have expected to be in him. Her shoulder takes a full impact. His blue face peering down at her displays all its crannies, the hoods of his eyes so deep from this perspective that he seems to have no eyes at all. Excuse me, she says. I don't feel quite right. A hiss fissures Noah's mouth in place of laughter. He reaches down and grabs her just beneath the injured shoulder, squeezing hard as he wrenches her up. The intensity of the pain surprises her, and she cries out something she's not sure what. She cries it again until he lets go. She massages the muscle where his hand had been, contemplating its soreness as she tries to diffuse it. There will be a bruise there tomorrow. She can handle a bruise. I take mine black, Arlie says. Somehow I knew, Lida answers. Her voice does not feel completely her own. It greets her face a few steps before her, her throat, tongue, teeth, absolved of all responsibility and sensation. She hears that voice tell Gruel she'll fetch him water as well. The two men, the couch, the ivy tower slip past as though taken by conveyor belt. The journey to the kitchen is arduous and distressing and unconscionably long. It's true, there's something not quite right about her. She cannot even feel her soles on the floor but none of it's unpleasant. How long has she been like this? The clock on the stove shows 2.19. 
for the past six hours are lost to her, aside from the meadow and bright morning dreamlight. Her own body feels at one remove, cocooned in some soft, pliant substance. Scooping grounds into the coffee filter provides great amusement. It's lovely to drift like this, to see her hands act without her willing them. Like watching yourself on the TV while you lounge beneath favorite blankets, and you don't have to question the why or the how to anything. It's on the TV, and whatever happens there is already written. It's finished and composed. The show will end as it always ends, every time. Lida starts the percolator and then goes to the back window, drawn by the night wind, cool through the storm screen. Nothing out there but dark. And then from within its depths, a long, rasping screech serrates the air, increasing in volume and intensity before it ceases abruptly. The sudden end of the cry makes the silence after it feel weighted, wary. Lida presses her nose against the fine steel mesh, catches the scent of rust. The wires pattern a waffle imprint on her skin. That there's a barn owl, she speaks aloud, her voice towed out through the screen onto the breeze. Again, the harsh screech sounds, ratcheting high and, <coughs> and then seizing. This time, she finds the owl's eyes reflecting copper from the kitchen light. It perches on the lowest branch of some tree not 10 feet away. As her eyes adjust to the dark out there, she begins to make out its placid white face shaped into a valentine, the copper eyes unequivocal and remote, mirroring her stare. The, old, the owl lifts one claw and holds it raised, talons clenched. Its head dips, and a loud hiss emanates from deep in its throat. Little buddy, how are you going to find a nice girl with a call like that? Minnows surge and twist in her belly, as if he has heard and understood her. The owl extends himself to full height and splays his wings at their widest expanse, arches his back upward, his face transforming, she could swear, to the picture of righteous indignation. Her nose tingles fierce again, and she rubs it hard against the screen. But it's not the same tingle inside. It's a sting, a stench. Something's burning. Something's on fire. The coffee machine coughs clouds of gray vapor, and she runs for it, yanks the cord from the wall socket, unaware it's her voice saying, shit, 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 in quick repeating chants. She pulls the decanter from the machine and discovers, impossibly, nothing swishing around inside. Nothing's been brewed. And yet the kitchen reeks of scalded coffee. Lida opens the top of the machine and finds no water there. Apparently, she's been trying to brew off condensation. The stench of old grounds seizes her face and slips one hot finger down her throat. And then the minnows swim up so quickly, she hardly makes the two steps to the sink. Six cruel heaves throttle her, hard enough that she grasps the counter with all she has so as not to be thrown to the floor again. The pliant tissues in her mouth burn as she holds panning over the mess she's made, drenched in a burst of warm sweat, staring into this dire expulsion from her stomach. A viscous, yellow, pancake-like substance expands slowly across the sink basin, streaked with pink. Floating within, she sees several small, half-digested pills, foamy and soft marshmallows on the surface of a hot chocolate. She turns on the faucet and watches the water begin to draw her mess toward the drain, and then smacks the spout aside to the next basin, unable to allow what's left of her pills to go down with the rest. She splashes her face several times, and the water is good and cold. Then she tries not to think about what she's doing. She pokes among the muck with her little finger, the only nail not chewed to the quick. She scoops up four of the least dissolved pills, 
creating a line on the median between the sink's two basins. From the front of the house comes a sound like a cross between a gasp and a belch. Lida raises her head to listen, straining to hear above the water. That owl again. Still, the sound focuses her, and she feels suddenly she's been in this kitchen a long time. She's not even certain Arlie Noah is still around. Quickly, she forms a bowl with one hand and piles the foamy pills within, and then fills the bowl with as much water as she can without allowing the pills to run away. And she does not look at what she brings to her mouth, and she swallows with a deep shudder, bile hot again on her tongue, and the minnows swim back down her throat to their home in her belly. Lada braces herself against the sink, ready to heave again. The, s the smell is starting to get to her. She holds her breath and waits. Then, once she's certain she can manage, she returns the spout to pour over her vomit and leaves it running as she steps to the hallway, no longer concerned with, no longer remembering why she had gone into the kitchen in the first place. Beyond the hall, she spies Arlie Noe above the couch, leaning over where Gruel must be whispering secrets to him, Noe's head quarter turned as if listening closely. Because of the position of the sofa, she can't see any part of Lawrence Gruel save for his bare, chopped up feet, which tremble and jerk in violent spasms, the quilt working its way up his ballooned ankles and hairless legs. It won't take another minute, says Arlie Noe in that matter-of-fact, side-of-the-mouth way he has, barely moving his lips. Something thumps the back of the couch, but she can't see what. The minnows are churning again, deep in the pit of her, and the water's rush in the kitchen fills her head as though pouring directly into her brain. I'm not supposed to be here anymore, she thinks. I'm supposed to be gone. Arlene leans further forward, rising, his meager body pressing its full weight down on his arms. I'm supposed to leave, Lida thinks, but she makes no move. Instead, she watches Gruel's feet toss like a dog's paws as it undergoes a bad dream, the way a dog digs or claws its way through sleep, whimpering. She watches just as she would watch a show on the TV she's seen before. She watches the feet slow to a stop, the heels come to a full rest on the sofa arm, and then the feet part very slowly, the remaining toes angling outward in the shape of a final V. Arlie sits back. He checks his watch, holding it up for a long time and glancing at Gruel, and then returning to the watch as a man who counts time waiting for a result. It's not until he drops the hand, satisfied with whatever calculation he was making there, that he notices Lida swaying in the hallway. You bring me that coffee? Lida doesn't answer. Noah's voice snaps her from her trance with the same suddenness of an unexpected, unexpected slap. She moves fully into the room, stepping around the sofa where the feet lie still on the armrest. Noah does not turn around. He waits for her to come up behind him to see for herself what her body has already figured out. Lawrence Gruel's gone. Thanks. I think that's going to be my Sunday morning. Thanks so much for coming out to Noir at the Bar. Thanks to Kirby Gann, Frank Bill, David James Keaton, Lou Perry, Carrie Gaffney, Matthew McBride, CJ Edwards, most of whom have books here for sale. Please stick around, buy a book. Some of us drove. Get a beer, hang out. Thanks so much.
All right, before we, uh, for, first of all, that was just Frank Bill, Lou Perry, and Kirby Gann. Before we get into talking about their stories at all, just want to make a note that we neglected to earlier. Um, the audio on this might sound a little bit weird, a little distorted, a little heavy or thick, maybe a little bit. Um, some point during the recording, the the settings on the amp that we were recording near got changed, and it was taking in all, or it was pushing out a lot more audio than than earlier on. So we did our best to make it sound not so terrible. We understand that it probably is a little on the loud side, but we did everything we could to do it what we could to make it better for you here's a helpful tip if you thought it was kind of bad go back and listen to it without headphones on it sounds much better <laughs> yeah 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 so but anyway um we figured that giving you not the best audio was better than not giving you any audio at all correct so kirby gan this ghosting book um seems kind of interesting and here's why the distinct feeling I got from listening to his excerpt of a book that, I mean, I know you said you kind of looked up the books and stuff. It looked, I saw a copy of it. It looked substantial, maybe 300-ish pages. He seems to write a lot like I feel short stories do. Like there was just a lot of emotion and detail and stuff just packed into that little piece that you typically find in short stories that I don't want to say is kind of lacking. I always accept from a novel that they're not that visual and kind of visceral you know what i mean all right the, the, i don't know if it's just that portion that he read but man that guy was packed a lot of stuff into a really small portion of, of his book that's true and um it definitely stands out from the typical kind of i don't know i think of nick corpon talking about how hard-boiled is so just cut to the bone and simple um and we do read a lot of stuff in that vein so having something that's more visually descriptive and and artistic almost is is a bit of a change of pace which is always a good thing really because you don't want to just keep reading the same thing over and over again you lose your appreciation for everything well it's like you said that that part that he talks about about trying to re-swallow the pills oh yeah (laughs) yeah i mean like like you could feel that you know what i mean it was just and that typically doesn't really happen in novels novels kind of are like this happened then this happened then this happened and there's just not that same kind of very vivid feel to it so yeah it's pretty awesome you know what else is awesome Lou Perry is awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, he. Uh, I, what did I'm trying to think of? Because he did that. You know, the you know what else is awesome, or what you know mm-hmm. other other things that are awesome, other mm-hmm. things that suck. What is that reminiscent of? We were talking about it that night, and I can't remember. Oh, of uh, TV snorted my brain. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Artie okay, yeah. TV snorted my brain. The way that Artie yeah talks mm-hmm. about things that he likes and dislikes and stuff like that. Yep. Um, definitely. I here's what I'm gonna say about that. I. I'm a big fan of repetitive gimmicks and short stories like that just because um, it's almost a way to keep someone focused. It's something, it's like a, um, who were we talking to? We were talking to someone way back about a story they did and there was like a certain watch that he mentioned several times throughout. I think it was, was it Osborne or? Anyway, um, what it does is it, it gives someone in, in a small amount of time where you really can't establish too much consistency something to go back on, something that's familiar. And that sense of familiarity, I think, really makes you buy into the story more. So the fact that he was repeating that type of gimmick made it easier to feel more about the story for me. I um, I agree. Yeah, it has a very kind of centering function to it. I also think when it's good, you don't call it a gimmick. You call it like a tool or something. Um, hmm, sure. Sorry, Semantics. Luke. Sorry, Luke. <laughs> Semantics. My bad. Uh, 
a fun story though i mean it's i wasn't really sure where it was going but um definitely uh very chuckle worthy yeah yeah it was good times and yeah, <laughs> the out of sequence part of this is that um uh david james keaton definitely makes reference to it uh when he steps up uh to to do his story because david in, in sequentially david came right after lou perry he's then you know and then and then another author and then kirby gan so we cut those guys into their own episode, but David comes up and he has something to say about the story too. So you'll get a little snip of that in our next episode. All right. And then way at the top of the program, many, many minutes ago, we had Frank bill with what once was, um, that story took like a kind of weird turn. It's yes. Yes. And, um, cause for me, it felt like your typical, you know, crime story with a Southern, or rural twist to it. Mm-hmm. And then once they get into that house, mm-hmm. it got really kind of, you have a good description of it. Like it had a feel to it, a specific feel to it. Well, it honestly, it reminded me a lot of like Richard Lehman's horror stuff, like this kind of weird group of people that lives there. That's not quite right that they, they stumble across. You know what the funny thing is? I keep thinking like, I can't be spoilery, but people just listen to it because we're so used to not spoiling stories. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. those whack jobs in the house, like it just, it, it had this really kind of almost turned horror in a kind of bizarre way. So uh yeah, didn't totally. see where that one was going, but man, that just, you know, like you said, it was, it was a good story coming along. You can see it was, you know, this relationship and everything was cool. And then wham, there's the hammer. Yeah, exactly. You know, and it kind of like switches and, and just very good stuff. So I'm, uh, uh, that made me a little bit, uh, excited, more excited about Donnybrook coming up. So, yeah, definitely a big fan of Frank Bill. I just like the way he writes. He's definitely got stories that, that grab a hold of you. Mm-hmm. Really, really nice guy, too. We got to spend a little bit of time talking to him. Quite the gentleman. Nicest guy. Yeah, for sure. So, um, so you want to talk a little bit about the clock? Yeah, uh, so we talked in the previous episode a little bit about how our hotel room, our hotel overall was haunted. Um, it was, you know, the the sign, that the ever-changing sign outside the elevator that tried to point us away from our hotel room and uh, hurling bottles of shampoo in the room. And then at one point, um, first of all, a little, little setup on this, and then I'll let Livius go into the actual creepiness of it. Um, so... We live in the central time zone because <laughs> we live outside of Chicago. Now, Cord in Indiana exists in that weird western part of southern Indiana that's in the eastern time zone. Um, along with there's parts of like the, the central Indiana area, I think, that are also in the eastern time zone. But the rest of Indiana still is in central. So it's very confusing. But we happened to land ourselves in one of the places where we had to go into another time zone while we were there. We and we did this on daylight savings time day. Yeah, the day that you know from Saturday to Sunday was when we were down there, and that's when you were supposed to set your clocks back, <laughs> fall back. Yeah, yes. fall back. <laughs> see, you can already see where this is going, guys. <laughs> our <laughs> our grasp of time zones and timekeeping in general not the best in the world. So that's when we went down there, um, and then we had our experience with the ever changing sign and the hurling shampoo. And we're like, you know, we, we went to the reading. We had some, you know, great times there, met some cool people, hung out at the Waffle House with Jet Airs and talked about movies and music. And we're like, you know what? It's been a good day. We're going to call it a night. 
So we get back to the hotel and we're kind of winding down and kind of recounting, you know, some stuff from the reading and, you know, getting caught up on Facebook and doing all that. And we're talking about, you know, the time change. And, uh, you know, at this point, like, here's there's only one other person in the world that's going to understand what we went through. And that's Matthew McBride, because he did the exact same thing we did. <laughs> and then talking to him afterwards, I, I, that guy still doesn't know what time it is. It, it was like four days ago. <laughs> so you have to understand that we went to Indiana and we moved one hour back okay so we get there and the eastern i'm sorry we moved one hour forward i should say so we get there and we move an hour forward later on that night time changes and we fall back but we're already an hour forward so then trying to figure out what time it is at home it's like you have to take two steps back from where you're at so really at any given time it could have been seven or eight or six and we have no absolutely no clue (laughs) can i cut in really quick Mm -hmm. because i just asked permission to yes um i just looked up that's one of the tweets from Matthew McBride mm-hmm. that he sent me after we had all gone back to the hotel because they were staying in the same hotel. And he said, this is like, <laughs> this is the, the message he sent on Twitter. We just left the hotel going on a stealth mission. Don't know if it's two o'clock or three o'clock or one o'clock. <laughs> yeah. And that's how it is. So while we're sitting there, the thing is that our phones change so we could trust our phones to be right for the time zone we were in. <laughs> So at some point, I'm thinking, hey, tomorrow, you know, when we wake up and you look at the alarm clock, remember that it's at the wrong time. And then I look at my, you know, at my phone and decide that somehow it's already on tomorrow's time. Now, this may have been influenced by the <laughs> flying shampoo bottle and the sides of the room. But Rob and I, are, are, we actually had a conversation. We're like, this clock doesn't look new enough to, like, get the time. Because there are yeah. clocks that will actually get, they either have batteries built into them or somehow through electricity or some type of magic, get the time updated. <laughs> <laughs> magic. So, so. But this was, like, an old-ass, like, alarm clock that had that fake plastic, like, wood panel look to it mm-hmm. that, you know, you know... It probably had that kind of weird yellow clear plastic plastic cord, mm-hmm. like power cord, like you have only in lamps that are 30 years old. Um, so you know this was not one of those like super high-tech alarm clocks that you know does shit on its own. So anyway, to make a way too long story a little bit shorter, um, come to realize the next morning that the time change, although it happens in our head whenever you know we go to sleep, that it doesn't <laughs> happen until 2 a.m. So that actually the clock was right and we're just idiots. Or are we? Oh, I'm pretty sure we are. Yeah, I was just trying yeah. to, you know, redeem, our, <laughs> re, re, redeem us a little bit. So not the case. Any rate, so if you if you're still tuned in, uh, only to say one more thing is that um, uh, we asked Jed to send us some song select or a song some song selection so we could find a song to to do these episodes with. So the song you're listening to is by Sam Phillips at the top and at the bottom of the episodes. Um, nice little song, but the one that caught my eye first was by PJ Harvey. So I go on a, on a mission to find um, this PJ Harvey song. And it turns out that Jed apparently is one of the only people in the world that owns the Batman Forever soundtrack because that's the only place you could find it. And I couldn't bring myself to, to purchase it to get that song. So if you're curious about the uh, alternate song, just go find. You could probably Google or go on YouTube, PJ Harvey, Batman Forever, was it? Yeah, the song's and, uh, called One Time Too Many, but it's from go. like the worst Batman movie ever. So if you're into the booked alternate alternative soundtrack, uh, turn down the recording, start playing that PJ Harvey song on the YouTube, and then when you're happy that you've listened to enough of it, turn back the recording to turn it back up. You get to see Jed like driving around in his car and 
and he's listening to that and he takes it out and puts in that Prince Batman, you know, from the first Batman <laughs> movie, like the for a change of the pace. Bat dance. That's right. So. <laughs> Can I just say one other thing? Fuck yes. Gonna... All right. So I got one more thing before we go. Um, I was looking at tweets. Uh, the Matthew McBride. I looked up the Matthew McBride tweet right below it because um, it's the tweets at me. Is one from Craig Craig Wallwork that just says you guys seem to live a wonderful and exciting life, and that was the day before, um, or probably something to do with before midnight um, or something. I don't know, but he was in the UK, so he was in the future. Uh, anyway, um, it was in reference to us going down to the event in Southern Indiana, and I just want to say, Craig, if you're listening, there's nothing wonderful and exciting about driving through Indiana. Yeah. Yeah, let's see. So our the wonderful and exciting thing. Let's see. We spent uh, what fourteen hours in a car together in like a thirty six hour period. <laughs> yep, got um, a haunted hotel. Um, and really, the, the yeah, the thing to remember though is that he thought we were we would live an exciting life before we dealt with the ghosts. Yeah. Now he's like, man, I got to move to the United States. These guys have way too much fun. <laughs> Wait, they had ghosts and clocks. <laughs> And call waiting. Tell you what, we've got we got this wonderful invention now. It's called call waiting too. Actually, and uh, yeah. Oh <laughs> damn it! Oh, UK. I don't know how we went from Indiana to UK, but all right. Um, if we haven't driven you away yet, there will be one more installment um, tomorrow of the Noir at the Bar Corridan readings, and that installment. We'll feature long, long time booked friend. Um, for some of you, this might be a new name, David James Keaton and CJ Edwards. And the reason we're doing those two together is that one is uh, somewhat a rebuttal to the other story. That's but, right. Yeah. So until next time, which is going to be very, very soon, I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Sneddon. Keep listening. Right through my skin